Good morning and welcome to our gathering. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. Last Sunday we looked at Jesus' commandment to love one another selflessly and sacrificially as He loves us. That we are to be ready and willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in the Lord just as Jesus laid down His life for His friends. We looked at who Jesus chooses for friendship, sinners and enemies of God, and what He did at the cross to make them His friends. He bled and died to pay their debt, to cleanse them of all transgression, to secure their forgiveness. There at the cross, He exchanged their raiment, His righteousness for their sins. And there at the cross, He reconciled them to God. We learned what we must do on our end to become His friends. We must repent of unbelief, turn from sin, and trust in His person and work alone. In the next section, Jesus describes what his friends do, know, and are. I've got six points for you. You're already at John chapter 15. We're going to be focusing on verses 14 through 17. This is where we will draw our points from. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we humble ourselves now and ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive the truth all to your glory. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now let's begin with our first point. Number one, this is the first thing the friends of Jesus do. Number one, the friends of Jesus obey him. We see this in verse 14. Jesus, as they're continuing to walk along the streets of Jerusalem toward Gethsemane, Jesus looks over at his disciples and says this to them, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now it's important for us to understand that Jesus was not making a conditional statement here. Our friendship with him is not contingent upon our obedience. If this were the case, we would be in and out of friendship with him because we disobey his commands from time to time. And the same is true of the disciples then. Jesus isn't saying, look, I'll be your friend if you obey me. That's not what he means. However, it is entirely true that Jesus has no friendship with those who merely claim to be his friends and yet simultaneously disregard his commands and live in habitual disobedience. These folks are friends of the world and they're still enemies of God, James 4.4. They're not friends of Jesus. If this isn't a, a conditional statement, what is it then? Well, it's actually a statement of fact. It was Jesus' way of saying, you are my friends and you will do whatever I command you. You see, the inevitable result of being in friendship with Jesus is obedience. The friends of Jesus obey him because they have been regenerated and given new hearts that love Him and desire to please Him. The friends of Jesus have been given the gift of faith, Ephesians 2.8, which produces obedience, Romans 1.5. Now, do the friends of Jesus obey Him perfectly? No, not at all. But they certainly try to. They certainly aim for that. And they definitely, most definitely, work at it. And when they fail... To obey their friend Jesus, they confess their disobedience before God and ask for His mercy. They also long for the day when perfect obedience will be a reality. 
when sin is vanquished and every distraction is removed, either in glory or at the return of Christ. Now, a question arises here. Did Jesus have a specific command in mind here? Yes, absolutely. What is it? That the disciples love one another in the same selfless, sacrificial way that he loved them. Verse 12, right? That's what we just came out of. My paraphrase of verse 14 would be like this. This is like Jesus saying this to his disciples. You are my friends and you will obey my command to love one another the way I loved you. Now, if we claim to be Jesus' friends, but our lives are not characterized by obedience to his commands, loving one another selflessly and sacrificially, etc., something is wrong. Something is off. Many today treat Jesus like a Facebook friend where they call him friend but don't know him intimately, love him deeply, or obey him consistently. We must understand that this is not the way friendship with Jesus works. In fact, he does not send friend requests that can be either confirmed or canceled by us. He sends the Holy Spirit who enters dead sinners and brings them to life, repentance, and faith, which results in immediate and lifelong obedience, thus proving that they are the friends of Jesus. Now, if you claim to love Jesus and consider him your friend, but your life is not characterized by obedience to his commands... He's like a Facebook friend to you, and your connection to him is superficial. And it's also clear that Jesus did not initiate this friendship with you, because if he had, you would be a new creation who obeys him. The fact is, you need to be born again. You need to be born of the Spirit of God. You need to be regenerated, and you need the gifts of repentance and faith. You need to have the finished work of Christ appropriated to you so that you can be forgiven, cleansed, and reconciled to God. Friendship with Jesus is impossible apart from these things, and only the Holy Spirit can perform them for you. So my advice to you would be to pray to the Father and ask Him to be merciful and ask Him to send the Holy Spirit to you in Jesus' precious name. That's number one. What is it? Number one is the friends of Jesus obey him. Now let's look at number two. The friends of Jesus know divine truth. We see this in verse 15. Jesus continues by saying to them, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. What a spectacular statement from the Lord to his disciples. Here, Jesus points to a well-known practice uh, done by the highest-ranking leaders in that region, and then he ties it to his relationship with his disciples. In those days, emperors and kings had select groups of people who had special access to them. They were literally called friends of the king. And I like what William Barclay wrote. He said, the friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate connection with him. They even had the right to enter his bedchamber, I guess that's bedroom, at the beginning of the day and speak with him before he spoke to his generals and his rulers and his statesmen. Wow, what a statement. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he basically points to his disciples who were 
absolutely familiar with this practice done by the kings and done by the emperors. They were familiar with the friends of the king. And he points to this well-known practice, points to them. They know what he's talking about. And he basically says to them, this is who you are to me. You are my select group of friends. You have special access to me. Now, the disciples may have been hesitant to accept this exalted title and privilege. The rabbis of that day never referred to their disciples as friends, nor did they share with them what they were doing. In other words, the rabbis of those days, they never became friends with their disciples or their students, and they never shared their own personal affairs or life with them. It was very textbook and very much like a classroom with teachers. And I tell you, these disciples here, as Jesus is telling them, look, you guys are my friends. I'm, I'm inviting you into not just friendship, but, but intimacy. You can come into my bedchamber, so to speak. I'm telling you, when these guys heard Jesus say this, they, they thought something was off. They must have, because Jesus was, in their minds, their rabbi. And what Jesus did here was totally decimate and break protocol. Now, to prove that Jesus sees them as friends... He illustrates the difference between servants and friends. The Greek root word for servants is, is doulos. Doulos can also be translated as slave. And in some of your uh, English translations of the Bible, like the King James, uh, they use the word slave instead of servants. Now, servants or slaves do not have intimate access to their masters, nor do they know what they're doing. They are not involved in their master's affairs. They simply do what they are told, and that is it. They don't have any kind of access to their masters. They're slaves. They're servants. And so they just, whatever they're told to do, that's what they go and do. They don't question it. They don't say, hey, what are you going to be doing tomorrow? Or when are you going on that business trip? Or, you know, they don't say any of those kinds of things to their masters. They don't have that kind of access or intimacy. And yet, friends, on the other hand, are granted intimate access and, and given knowledge. And the divine knowledge Jesus imparted to his disciples proved that he saw them as friends. I mean, three years of, of gospel teaching to them and teaching them how to be a Christian, these sorts of things, unpacking for them all the mysteries of the, of the, um, of the new covenant and these sorts of things, all of these things acknowledge the fact that Jesus saw them as friends. If he had viewed them as mere servants or slaves, he would not have as it says in the text, made known to them all that he had heard from the Father. He would have just not unpacked any of this information for them, not unraveled any mystery, not explained any parable to them. He would have treated them as servants and slaves who are not familiar with or know their master's affairs. But Jesus gives them divine truth. He, he reveals divine truth to them, and that's what a friend does. I like how R.C. Sproul put it. Jesus showed his friendship for his disciples by confiding to them the deepest things his father had confided to him. A master does not confide in a servant, he said. However, he had told them all things his father had commissioned him to make known. This is the way of a friend. Now, if, if we are friends of Jesus, we possess divine truth because he reveals it to all of his friends to all of his disciples, to all true believers. 
If we possess divine truth, it is clear that we have become friends of the King of Kings and that we have been granted intimate access to Him. Now, make no mistake, believers are still servants and slaves too. Jesus didn't jettison this title here. He didn't abandon it or throw it away. You're no longer my servants or slaves. You're only my friends now. No, they were all three, and we are all three. We are Jesus' servants, slaves, and friends. And we are not to treat Jesus like any other friend. He is not our buddy. He is not our homeboy. I don't know if you ever saw that t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. That was a disaster. Jesus is neither. He's not our, 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 our buddy. He's not our homeboy. He is our friend, but he is also, and I would say friend with a capital F, he is also our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King, and he must be treated as such. He must be revered and respected. And that's what we would do in a good friendship anyways, in a true friendship. We would treat our friend with dignity and respect and honor, right? We would hold them high in our lives. And that's what Jesus wants from us. We are his friend, servant, and slaves. And that's okay because he's the most benevolent master in history. He doesn't whip his slaves. He doesn't beat his slaves. He doesn't do, you know, repeat the crimes against folks that were committed in this nation many, many years ago. Slavery back in Jesus' day was vastly different. So, so don't think of it like that. He is a benevolent master, and it is a great privilege to be his slave. It really is. That's number two. Number three, the friends of Jesus have been specially chosen by him. Verse 16a, Jesus just plainly says to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. How simple of a statement. And this is another reversal of of customary Jewish practice. Normally, would-be disciples would choose the rabbi they wanted to follow. But Jesus tells his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, the Greek root word for chose is... uh, Eklegomai, eklegomai. And it can also be translated as elect. So the verse here could be rendered, you did not elect me, but I elected you. And when he said this to them, when he said this to his disciples as they're walking on those roads toward Gethsemane, he was not merely pointing to the moment that he had chose them from the crowd as his apostles. You can read about that and. Matthew 10, 4, and Mark 3, 13 through 19, Luke 6, 12 through 16. He was not merely referring to that moment where he appointed them as apostles, selecting them from a crowd. No, no, no. He was also pointing to the moment in eternity past when he elected and predestined them to become apostles. You see, God's plan for his people includes... Not only the election and predestination of their salvation and adoption, Ephesians 1 and verse 11, but the election and predestination of their stations in life, of their positions, of their service that they will perform for him. Think of Jeremiah. What did God say to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5? He says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That means I set you apart. 
I plan to make you holy and set you apart from everyone else. And then he says this, I appointed you to the nations as a prophet. So before Jeremiah was ever formed in the womb, before the foundations of the earth were ever laid, any of that, God knew him and had set him apart and had set it up so that he would be predestined to become a prophet to the nations. That is extraordinary. Think of the Apostle Paul as well. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, he describes how God predestined him to become an apostle to Gentiles, that's non-Jews, before he was ever born. And Paul goes on to say that it was by grace that God did this for him. So Jeremiah was elected and predestined to become a prophet. Paul was elected and predestined to become an apostle. And the disciples here in our narrative who were walking toward Gethsemane with Jesus, what were they? They were elected and predestined to become apostles. Now we must understand what the basis of this predestination, this election is. The basis for God's election, the basis for God's predestination unto these things is grace or sovereign grace. This means that he did not elect and predestinate um, people because of who they would become or because of what they would do in the future. Romans 9.11, you know, like respond to the gospel positively. You know, God doesn't reside in time. He doesn't look down the corridors of time. And some people think that that's how he figured out who to elect and predestine to this or that. He just looks out over the corridors of time, right? He studies the future and he looks to see who will respond positively to the gospel. Look, at 31 years old or 32 years old, Phil Baker will respond positively to the gospel. Therefore, I elect him to salvation. I predestine him to salvation and I predestine him to become a pastor. That's not the way it works. God doesn't base his election or his predestination on anything that we would do, whether it be positive or negative. The men walking with the Lord were elected and predestined to salvation, to friendship, and to their apostolic positions, not because Jesus saw piety in them or religious potential. They possessed neither. They didn't have those things. Several were fishermen. One was a tax collector, which was the absolute worst kind of turncoat Jewish person you could be. There was another one who was a zealot. He had all this misplaced zeal. He was a, a radical nationalist. These, these men were not pious men. These men were not, they didn't have religious potential. They were like the original Motley crew, right? They were elected and predestined because of grace, because of sovereign grace, not because of who they are or who they were or who they would become. These men would never do anything positive towards Jesus Christ if Jesus did not first pursue them by grace. They would have remained dead in their sins, just as all people will. We are saved because God graciously elected and predestined us to salvation. We are friends of Jesus because God graciously elected and predestined us to become his friends. And like the disciples here, we have been graciously elected and predestined or specially chosen by Jesus, if you want to put it that way, to hold various positions in his church and to serve him. The same is true of us. The same is true of us. 
He appointed apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And guess what? The appointments of these men at this point uh, in, 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 in Scripture was predestined and elected long before the foundations of the world were ever laid. He appropriated to his friends through the Holy Spirit spiritual gifts that are to be used to serve the brethren, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Look, every person whom God elected and predestined to salvation, he predestined to give them particular spiritual gifts that could be used for the building up of the saints in the ministry. Every friend of his, every Christian has been specially chosen by Jesus and appointed to be a bearer of the gospel and disciple maker. Mark 16, verse 15, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now this particular appointment that every believer in front of Jesus has received is precisely what Jesus points to in the next verse. Number four, the friends of Jesus go and bear fruit. Verse 16b. Jesus continues by saying, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Having chosen and trained the disciples, Jesus commanded them to go and bear fruit. This is literally what he predestined them to do. Now, what is fruit? The word fruit here does not refer to the fruits of the Spirit like in verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. This fruit here is gospel fruit. It refers to conversions to Christ, people getting saved. How is this fruit produced? It is produced when a faithful friend of Jesus shares the gospel and the Holy Spirit possesses the hearer or the hearers and thus brings them to life, repentance, and faith. The newly converted person or persons is the fruit and they are abiding fruit. In other words, they will remain in the faith. Why? Because the Holy Spirit performed the work and he remains in them. Man, this is a, a profound truth here. It's like the disciples are going to go out and they're going to bear fruit. Who's the fruit that they bear? New converts, people who are getting saved. And since it's the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, they are truly saved and they will remain in the faith. They will continue to abide in Jesus and, and walk the narrow path all the way to the celestial city because this is the work of the Spirit. They are the fruit that remains New converts, Christians, are fruit that remain. They remain. And they can never not remain because Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. He keeps us. He holds us. He is our great high priest who intercedes for us. He keeps us in the faith. He keeps us moving forward. Even when we fail, we will persevere. We are fruit that will abide and continue on because it's the work of God in us. We must understand that Christian life is not a, a spectator sport. Jesus did not choose believers, his friends, to stand idly by while the world continues on its way to hell. We are to go and bear fruit. We are to go and share the gospel and rely on the Holy Spirit to bring men to life, repentance, and faith, not rely on man-made methods such as anxious seats, altar calls, 
or that dreadful prayer of salvation, which is so misleading. Our ministries here at RHC and to to one another must be gospel-centered, where the gospel is modeled through our lifestyles, and it must be heard regularly. We must preach it to one another, say it to one another, gossip it to one another. We must stick to the gospel in our in-house, right here, when we do ministry for each other, we must stick to the gospel here. And when we go, we must stick to the gospel. Michael Cannon Jr. wrote, Anyone can do something good for the church. We can make something happen. We can perform a ministry. We can put on a concert. We can put on a play. We can do a project. We can build something. We can teach a class or teach a seminar. We can cook a meal. We can provide a carpool for someone. And he says this, the only way those have eternal significance, however, is if they bring the gospel into contact with man. I tell you, there is so much gospel-less ministry being performed by churches today. Even in this community, even in this community, there is no shortage of acts of kindness out there. Christians are always out in our community removing graffiti and cleaning up alleyways. I've never understood that because alleyways get demolished about two hours later. But they're always out taking down graffiti and painting over it. They're always out cleaning up alleys. They're always out grooming, you know, and uh, grooming overgrown yards because some people out there don't have lawn equipment or can't afford someone to come do that for them. They're always out there distributing meals in our parks to homeless folks. They're always over there on 8th Street doing this by the taco trucks. I mean, these things happen on a weekly basis in our community. And they aren't inherently bad. They can be good. But if the gospel is being left out, and I know it is most of the time because I have participated in so many of these outreach events If the gospel is being left out, and I know that it is, we Christians are doing our community a great disservice because we are merely addressing our community's temporal needs rather than its spiritual needs, which are vastly more important. A plate of hot food does not possess eternal significance. A plate of hot food accompanied by a simple gospel presentation does. A mowed lawn does not possess eternal significance. A mowed lawn accompanied by a simple gospel presentation does. Removing graffiti from a widow's fence does not possess eternal significance. Removing graffiti while sharing the gospel with this widow does. We must include the gospel when we go. There will be no fruit or abiding fruit if we leave it out, period. And on top of this, the Lord Jesus himself will be displeased with us because we disobeyed his commandment right here in chapter 15, verse 16b. Go and bear fruit. The only way we can do that is by going and taking the gospel and preaching it. Handing out meals, all these other things are great, but if we don't follow that up with a gospel presentation, even a simple one, even just sharing our testimony and pointing to Jesus and his power and how he can forgive and cleanse and and resurrect us unto new life, if if we just leave that out, we've done nothing other than put hot food in someone's belly. That's great, but that is not their deepest, most significant need. We are Christians. We are to be about the gospel more than anything else. 
more than anything else. When we go, when we stay, whatever we do, all of our conversations are to be seasoned with it. We stick to the gospel. We stick to the gospel. That's the only way. And, and this, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's telling them, you will go and bear fruit and that your fruit will abide. We, we need to go and bear fruit by preaching the gospel. We need to do that. And we need to pray that it has that kind of salvific impact on people. The Holy Spirit attends our preaching and that he, that he affects and works, right? He brings people to life and, and repentance and faith and these sorts of things. That those people become fruit and fruit that abides, remains. They remain in the Lord forever and ever and ever. I tell you what, this is one of the most spectacular things you can witness as a Christian. That God would actually use you to help bring someone through your preaching, through your gospeling the gospel, help use you to bring someone to life. We know it's the work of the Spirit, but He still uses human agents to do it. You can be one of those human agents that's involved in this. It'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind. Number five, the friends of Jesus intercede on behalf of the lost. Verse 16c, Jesus says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, Jesus reminds his disciples, his friends, of the importance of prayer in regards to evangelism. You know, going and bearing fruit, going and preaching the gospel. When they go, they are to pray to the Father for fruit, for conversions, for people to get saved in Jesus' name, which means in a way that is consistent with who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing in the world. Matthew Henry's paraphrase of Jesus' words here is really, really good. He wrote, this is like Jesus saying this, I have appointed you to be ministers of the gospel. My Father will have his hand stretched out to assist you. Whenever you pray to him in my name, he will grant you assistance. How awesome is that? This is a promise. This is a promise. And this exhortation to pray, this, this promise also features an intercessory component. Intercessory prayer is the act of praying on someone's behalf or praying for others. We see a great example of intercessory prayer in Luke chapter 22, verse 32, where Jesus prays for Simon, Peter, during the Last Supper. And we didn't read about this in John's Gospel. He didn't include it, but we see it over in Luke 22. And Satan wanted to sift Simon, Peter, like wheat. He wanted to destroy him. But Jesus interceded on his behalf, thus ensuring that his faith would hold fast despite his thrice denial, and that he would repent and return to his leadership position in the near future. As Jesus' disciples, his friends, we are to intercede. We are to pray on behalf of the lost. We are to pray to the Father and ask him to send the Holy Spirit to give unbelievers eyes that see and, and ears that hear, right? Mark 8, 18. And to replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, Ezekiel 36, 26, in Jesus' name. That's how you intercede on behalf of the lost. You pray for them, and you pray for them fervently and consistently. I like what Matt Slick wrote. He said, when we witness, we plant the seeds of the gospel, but it is God who causes the growth. 
In prayer, we ask God to give that growth. In prayer, we ask God to convict the unrepentant of their sin and by that awaken in them the need for salvation. That's what we're to pray for. We are to pray for ourselves too because things like compassion for the lost, a desire to go and share the gospel, and boldness are not attractive to our flesh. In fact, they are repulsive to our flesh. The flesh would rather lavish itself with, with all sorts of gifts and pampering and, you know, and leisure and comfort and things that don't disturb it. That's what the flesh wants. And, and many believers just give in to the flesh and don't go out and do what they're supposed to be doing. If we lack compassion, we can ask God to make us compassionate in Jesus' name. If we lack desire, we can ask God to give us desire in Jesus' name. If we lack boldness, we can ask God to make us bold in Jesus' name. You remember that story we looked at in the book of Acts many, many years ago? Where the believers had, um, they, they knew that Peter and John had, had gotten locked up in jail and they were terrified of being Christians and being, you know, being missional and these sorts of things. And they prayed for boldness in the entire room they were in. I think it was the upper room. The room they were in, it shook. It literally physically shook. And that they came out of that prayer session emboldened, going out and preaching the gospel. And if we lack any of these things, a compassion, a desire to go reach the lost, or the boldness to do it, we can pray. We can pray. We can pray. We can intercede on our own behalf. And God will graciously give us what we need to get on mission. If we pray for these things sincerely and consistently in Jesus' name, God will graciously grant them because they fit with his will. Having compassion, a desire to go, the boldness to go, these, this is what Jesus wants us to do. If, if we lack what we need to, to get it going here, if we pray for it consistently, he's going to give it because it's what he wants. It's what he wants. Number six, the friends of Jesus love and care for one another. Verse 17, Jesus says this, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, if you're in pastoral ministry, you're an elder or you're an aspiring pastor, if you're in any kind of leadership position that, that serves in a ministry, or if you just serve in a ministry, I, I want you to pay very close attention to what I'm about to say to you. When the disciples go, right, because Jesus said, you're going to go and bear fruit. When they actually get out and go, and this is really going to happen primarily after the day of Pentecost. It happens on the day of Pentecost for Peter. But that's kind of the, the launch point. But when they go, they are going to get caught up in their evangelistic work. They're going to go out and preach the gospel, and God is, is going to send the Holy Spirit in power, and people are going to get converted. People are going to get saved. There's going to be a lot of fruit. These guys are going to get caught up in that. And, and when, when God grants that gospel fruit, they're going to get caught up in the excitement of all these conversions. They're going to get caught up in making disciples. They're going to get caught up in baptizing these new believers. They're going to get caught up in teaching all of these newly converted brothers and sisters to obey all that Jesus commanded, right? They're going to get caught up in the Great Commission. And with all of this awesome, great ministry happening around them, they might become susceptible to falling into one of the devil's great snares, forgetting to love and care for one another. 
forgetting to love and care for one another. And it is very, very easy to fall into this snare of the devil. Very easy. Sometimes I, I get caught up with ministry stuff, you know, I just get kind of enraptured by it and I, I'm thrust into it, so much is going on. I just, I forget to love and care for the elders of this church. I even forget to love and care for my family the way that I'm supposed to. When I was a pastor at my former church, it was a great church, but a lot of stuff was going on there, and I would just get so wrapped up in ministry sometimes, it was like those alongside of me, I didn't even pay attention to them. I was just too busy ministering to all these people. It's easy to fall into this snare. It's easy to forget about those whom you're supposed to be loving and sacrificing for. Yes, you're to love those who are, who are being converted and all this, these sorts of things, absolutely, but not at the expense of your pre-existing brothers and sisters, especially those co-laborers who are working alongside you, especially at the highest level, your own family. And we must also be careful to never let our love for ministry supersede our love for one another. This too is easy to do. Many, many pastors have been reduced to rubble because of this. I know pastors who have gotten divorced and disqualified because they loved ministry more than their wives. Now, they would never admit to that, but they proved it through their life because all they ever did was stay around the church, writing things, doing things, ministering to this person, ministering to that person, ministering to anyone and everyone other than their own spouse. They weren't a present husband. In fact, they forsook the first rule, and that is to love their wives as Christ loves the church. They just abandoned that and started loving everyone else or loving the ministry. Huge mistake. Huge pitfall of the devil. He lays this snare before everyone, anyone and everyone who does ministry. He wants us to get so wrapped up in it that we forget to love one another. We forget to care for one another. And here Jesus basically tells his disciples, his friends, I command that you do not forget to love and care for one another. Don't do it. You're going to get busy. There's going to be fruit. It's fruit that abides. Don't forget Peter. Do not forget about John. John, do not forget about James. You know? James, do not forget about Judas, not Iscariot. Don't forget about one another. Love one another. Care for one another. Minister to one another. Make sure you do that. And some people think that they simply cannot go wrong as long as they are out there laboring for the Lord. They justify neglecting their families and fellow co-laborers. They say, well, I, I know I haven't been home much lately, but it's okay. I've been out there serving the Lord. Newsflash, you stopped serving the Lord when you started neglecting your family. You neglected your first act of service. Jesus commanded that we love one another sacrificially, not sacrifice one another on the altar of ministry. We are to never, ever do this. These are not sacrifices he accepts. They are a stench in his nose. They are a stench in his nose. Jesus commanded that his disciples love one another three times the same 
evening, thus elucidating the fact that we must reject anything and everything that diminishes, damages, or destroys the bonds of love, especially among his people, among his friends, including busy ministry. We must never allow the ministry to consume us to the point that we neglect those whom are charged to our care. Never. Closing. I didn't write any closing statements this morning. I kind of figured I wouldn't say much more or that I would leave it directly to the Holy Spirit in this particular moment, but I do have a thought for you. The, the thing that keeps coming to mind, and it, it really started coming to my mind this morning before I even got to church, was just how privileged we are. I mean, first, to, 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 be, to be elected and predestined to salvation and to be actually saved, th this, is, this is a privilege that supersedes any kind of privilege there is. To be a child of God, this is a high, high, high privilege. To be made friends of Jesus, this is a high privilege. This is a high privilege. Friendship with Jesus is, 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 is there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it in all creation. He is the perfect friend. Perfectly faithful. Perfectly loyal. Perfectly loving. Perfectly encouraging. He is the ideal friend. And we are so privileged to be called his friends. To be saved and to be called his friends. As his friends, he imparts to us divine truth. Great mysteries that, that the Old Testament saints who were friends of Jesus didn't even have access to. He has imparted these new covenant mysteries and promises to us. Oh, how privileged we are. How privileged we are as his friends to be predestined, elected and predestined to go and bear fruit to be bearers of the gospel, the greatest message the world has ever heard or will ever hear. What a privilege it is to be bearers of the gospel. What a privilege it is to, to be involved in mission and in ministry. What a privilege it is to be able to see fruit and fruit that remains. True conversions, people who will love Jesus forever. We are incredibly, insanely privileged. This all comes to us by grace, unmerited favor, not by anything that we've ever done. It all comes to us from love. All of this expresses the vast, vast, deep, deep love Jesus has for his people. It all comes to us through love. He loves us so much that he elected and predestined us to salvation and to our positions in service in these things. That is, that is a profound, deep, deep love. He even goes to the cross to secure it all for us, to manifest it for us. He loves us. We are incredibly privileged. And with that being said, we ought to be the most thankful 
and obedient people on the face of the earth. It, it is his love, what he's done for us, his friendship to us. These things propel us. They fuel us. His love fuels our love for him and our desire to obey him. Think about that. Let his love, let his acceptance, let his friendship with you be the fuel that drives your love for him and your desire to obey and your desire to go. Cherish this relationship you have with Jesus. Love him, obey him, go and bear fruit. This is what he's calling us to do. This is what he's predestined us to do. Let's do it. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? It could be that you have absolutely no interest in these things because you're not actually a friend of Jesus. That you've never been born again. You've never been regenerated. You've never been made his friend by grace through faith. I, I, can, I can promise you that you've never had a friendship like like you will with Jesus, that you will find security, purpose, mission, all the things that are missing in your life you will find in a relationship with Jesus. But you must, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner separated from him and you must repent of your rejection of him and your unbelief and you must trust in him. Believe that he lived for your righteousness, that he died to pay your sin debt, which was greater than, than you could ever pay for. You could never pay for it. Believe that he was buried to settle your account. Believe that he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and you will become a friend of Jesus, and you will, as his friend, you will love him, you will obey him, and you will go and bear fruit. Amen.